This is John W. Whitehead, author of Battlefield America, The War on the American People, bringing you a message about the state of our nation. I have known a lot of good cops, and I've defended a lot of good cops, and I've been fortunate to call a number of good cops friends. So when I say that warrior cops, warrior cops hyped up on their own authority and the power of their badge, have not made this country, America, any safer or freer, I'm not disrespecting any of the fine, decent, lawful police officers who take seriously their oath of office to serve and protect their fellow citizens uphold the Constitution, and maintain the peace. My beef is with the growing squads of warrior cops who have been given the green light to kill, shoot, taser, abuse, and steal from American citizens in the so-called name of law and order. These cops are little more than vigilantes with a badge. Indeed, it's increasingly evident that the militarized police armed with weapons of war who are allowed to operate above the law and break the laws with impunity have not made this country any safer or freer. A new study by a political scientist at Princeton University concludes that militarizing police and SWAT teams, and I'm quoting here, provide no detectable benefits in terms of officer safety or violent crime reduction, unquote. In other words, warrior cops aren't making us or themselves any safer. Consider that not a day goes by without reports of police officers overstepping the bounds of the Constitution and brutalizing, terrorizing, and killing the American citizenry. Indeed, the list of incidents in which unaccountable police abuse their power, betray their oath of office, and leave taxpayers bruised, broken, and or killed grows longer and more tragic by the day. Believe it or not, Americans are now eight times more likely to die in a police confrontation than they are to be killed by a terrorist. The problem, as one reporter rightly concluded, and again I'm quoting, is not that life has gotten that much more dangerous. It's that authorities have chosen to respond to even innocent situations as if they were in a war zone, unquote. This battlefield mindset has, goes hand in hand with the rise of militarized SWAT teams, frequently justified as tools necessary to combat terrorism and deal with rare but extremely dangerous criminal situations, such as those involving hostages. SWAT teams, which first appeared on the scene in California in the 1960s, have now become intrinsic, thanks in large part to substantial federal assistance and the Pentagon's military surplus recycling program, which allows the transfer of military equipment, weapons and training to local police for free or at sharp discounts. Ponder this, in 1980, there were roughly only 3,000 SWAT team style raids in the U.S. annually. Incredibly, that number has since grown to more than 80,000 SWAT team raids per year. No longer reserved exclusively for deadly situations, SWAT teams are now increasingly being deployed for relatively routine police matters, with some SWAT teams being sent out as much as five times a day. In the state of Maryland alone, listen to this, 92% of the 8,200 SWAT team missions were used to execute search or arrest warrants. 
For example, police in both Baltimore and Dallas have used SWAT teams to bust up poker games. A Connecticut SWAT team swarmed a bar suspected of serving alcohol to underage individuals. In Arizona, a SWAT team was used to break up an alleged cockfighting ring. An Atlanta SWAT team raided a music studio, allegedly out of a concern that it might have been involved in illegal music piracy. A Minnesota SWAT team raided the wrong house in the middle of the night, handcuffed three young children, held their mother on the floor at gunpoint, shot the family dog, and then forced the handcuffed children to sit next to the carcass of their dead pet for more than an hour while they searched the home. A California SWAT team drove an armed Linko Bearcat into Roger Serrato's yard, surrounded his home with paramilitary troops wearing face masks, and threw a fire-starting flashbang grenade into the house. When Serrato appeared at a window, unarmed and wearing only his shorts, the cops held him at bay with rifles. Serrato died of asphyxiation from being trapped in the flame-filled house. Incredibly, the father of four had done nothing wrong. The SWAT team had misidentified him as someone involved in a shooting. These incidents, folks, are just the tip of the iceberg. Nationwide, SWAT teams have been employed to address an astonishingly trivial array of criminal activity or mere community nuisances, angry dogs, domestic disputes, improper paperwork filed by an orchid farmer, and misdemeanor marijuana possession, to give a few examples. If these raids are becoming increasingly common and widespread, you can chalk it up to the make-work philosophy in which you assign, at times, unnecessary jobs to individuals to keep them busy or employed. In this case, however, the make-work principle is being used to justify the use of sophisticated military equipment and, in the process, qualify for federal funding. Follow the money trail, as they say. Now remember, SWAT teams originated as specialized units dedicated to defusing extremely sensitive, dangerous situations. They were never meant to be used for routine police work, such as serving a warrant. As the role of paramilitary forces has expanded, however, to include involvement in nondescript police work targeting nonviolent suspects, the mere presence of SWAT team units has actually injected a level of danger and violence into police-citizen interactions that was not present as long as these interactions were handled by traditional civilian police officers. What we are witnessing is an inversion of the police-civilian relationship. Rather than compelling police officers to remain within their constitutional bounds as servants of the people, Ordinary Americans are now being placed at the mercy of militarized police units. This is what happens when paramilitary forces are used to conduct ordinary policing operations such as executing warrants on nonviolent defendants. Moreover, general incompetence, collateral damage such as fatalities, property damage, and so on, and botched raids tend to go hand in hand with an overuse of paramilitary forces. SWAT teams have even on occasion conducted multiple sequential raids on wrong addresses or executed search warrants despite the fact that the suspect is already in police custody, believe it or not. Police have also raided homes on the basis of mistaking the presence or scent of legal substances for drugs 
Incredibly, these substances have included tomatoes, sunflowers, fish, elderberry bushes, hibiscus, and even ragweed. As you can see, all too often botched SWAT team raids have resulted in one tragedy after another for the residents with little consequences for law enforcement officers. Unfortunately, judges tend to afford extreme levels of deference to police officers who have mistakenly killed innocent citizens, but do not afford similar leniency to civilians who have injured police officers in acts of self-defense. Even homeowners who mistake officers for robbers in the middle of the night can be sentenced for assault or murder if they take defensive actions resulted in harm to police. Drug warrants, for instance, are typically served by paramilitary units late at night or shortly before dawn. Unfortunately, to the unsuspecting homeowner, especially in cases involving mistaken identities or wrong addresses, a raid can appear to be nothing less than a violent home invasion with armed intruders crashing through their door. Of course, the natural reaction would be to engage in self-defense. Yet such a defensive reaction on part of the homeowner, particularly a gun owner, will spur officers to employ lethal force. That's exactly what happened to Jose Garana, the young ex-Marine who was killed after a SWAT team kicked open the door of his Arizona home during a drug raid and opened fire. According to news reports, Garana, 26 years old and the father of two children, grabbed a gun in response to the forced invasion but never fired his weapon. In fact, the safety was still on his gun when he was killed. Police officers were not as restrained. The young Iraqi war veteran was allegedly fired upon 71 times. Garana had no prior criminal record and the police found nothing illegal in his home. Folks, the problems inherent in these situations are further compounded by the fact that SWAT teams are granted no-knock warrants at high rates such that the warrants themselves are rendered practically meaningless. This sorry state of affairs is made even worse by the U.S. Supreme Court rulings that have essentially done away with the need for a no-knock warrant altogether, giving the police authority to disregard the protections afforded American citizens by the Fourth Amendment. If ever there was a time to demilitarize and de-weaponize local police forces, it's now. While we are now grappling with a power-hungry police state at the federal level, the militarization of domestic law enforcement is largely the result of the militarization of local police forces, which are increasingly militaristic in their uniforms, weaponry, language, training, and tactics, and have come to rely on SWAT teams in matters that once could have been satisfactorily performed by traditional civilian officers. Yet, American police forces were never supposed to be a branch of the military, nor were they meant to be private security forces for the reigning political faction. Instead, they were intended to be an aggregation of countless local police units composed of citizens like you and me that exist for a sole purpose, that is, to serve and protect the citizens of each and every American community. As a result of the increasing militarization of the police in recent years, however, the police now not only look like the military with their foreboding uniforms and phalanx of lethal weapons, but they function like them as well. Therefore, 
No more do we have a civilian force of peace officers entrusted with serving and protecting the American people. Instead, today's militarized law enforcement officials have shifted their allegiance from the citizenry to the state, the government, acting preemptively to ward off any possible challenges to the government's power, unrestrained by the boundaries of the Fourth Amendment. As journalist Herman Schwartz observed, and I'm quoting here, the Fourth Amendment was designed to stand between us and the arbitrary governmental authority. For all practical purposes, that shield has been shattered, leaving our liberty and personal integrity subject to the whim of every cop on the beat, trooper on the highway, and jail official." Unquote. Armed police officers, the end product of the government, federal, local, and state, and law enforcement agencies, having merged, have become a standing or permanent army composed of full-time professional soldiers who do not disband. Yet these permanent armies are exactly what those who drafted the U.S. Constitution and our Bill of Rights feared as tools used by despotic governments to wage war against its citizens. This phenomenon we are experiencing with the police is what philosopher Abraham Kaplan referred to as the law of the instrument, which essentially says that to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. In the scenario that has been playing out in recent years, we, the citizenry, have become the nails to be hammered by the government's henchmen, also known as the nation's law enforcement agencies. Yet the tension inherent in most civilian police encounters these days can't be blamed exclusively on law enforcement's growing reliance on SWAT teams and donated military equipment. It goes far deeper to a transformation in the way police view themselves and their line of duty. Specifically, what we're dealing with today is a skewed shoot-to-kill mindset in which police, trained to view themselves as warriors or soldiers in a war, whether against drugs or terror or crime, must get the bad guys. That is, anyone who is a potential target before the bad guys get them. The result is a spike in the number of incidents in which police shoot first and ask questions later. Making matters worse, however, when these officers who have long since ceased to be peace officers violate their oaths by bullying, beating, tasering, shooting, and killing their employers, that's the taxpayers, folks, the taxpayers to whom they owe their allegiance, they are rarely given more than a slap on the hands before resuming their militarized patrols. As I document in my book, Battlefield America, The War on the American People, this lawlessness on the part of law enforcement, an unmistakable characteristic of a police state, is made possible in large part by police unions who routinely oppose civilian review boards and resist the placement of names and badge numbers on officer uniforms. The police agencies that abide by the blue code of silence, the quiet understanding among police, that they should not implicate their colleagues for their crimes and misconduct. Prosecutors who treat police officers with greater leniency than civilian offenses. Courts that sanction police wrongdoing in the name of security and legislatures that enhance the power, reach, and arsenal of the police and the citizenry that fails to hold its government accountable to the rule of law. Clearly, it's time for a reality check for both the police and the citizens of America. The Rutherford Institute is doing its part to push back against the police state and make the government play by the rules of the Constitution. But we can't fight these battles alone. 
To join the resistance and help us spread the word, start by liking this video and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Visit our website at www.rutherford.org and check out our library of thought-provoking commentaries, legal resources, and so much more. Subscribe to our email alerts and I will send you my weekly commentary, Rutherford press alerts, and a weekly rundown of pertinent headlines and news articles to keep you apprised of the growing threats to our freedoms. And finally, if you are able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Rutherford Institute by again visiting us online at www.rutherford.org or donate using PayPal. Your donation allows the Rutherford Institute to push back against the government's power grabs, corruption, and ongoing assaults on the Constitution. Together, we can make America free again.